the show goes on. This is the official show on the Fish Stripes Podcast channel where we cover your Miami Marlins every day in our own way. I'm Eli Sussman, Managing Editor of Fish Stripes, encouraging you, pleading with you to subscribe to the Fish Stripes Podcast wherever you get your pod. Enjoy our various audio offerings practically every single day, especially on weekdays for the next you know, six plus months, maybe even longer, depending on how the Marlins do here in 2022. One of our final episodes before opening day of the season in what is typically in a normal year, a calm before the storm little window for us. This is not your normal year, of course, coming off the lockout, a compressed spring training, a disjointed offseason. We knew there would be substantial moves made around the league leading all the way up to opening day, perhaps even right after opening day. The Marlins directly involved in one of them. I'm recording this very shortly after. They just officially completed a six-player trade with the Baltimore Orioles. We're about to get into all that. Let's run through the headlines, small pod style from the last few days of Marlins baseball since our last small pod on Friday, beginning with what was tentatively my idea of what to cover on this show. Sandy Alcantara being confirmed as the Marlins opening day starter for the third consecutive season. He was great each of the first two times he got that assignment, and now he'll be going up against the Giants officially on Friday after looking pretty good during spring training in what we were able to see from him in limited Grapefruit League action. That's going to be a treat. Every time we get to watch him pitch, he gets a little bit better every single season, and I am I'm really fascinated to see what enhancement he makes to his game this year, the one that more than a few people think can bring him into perhaps Cy Young contention this year and truly establish himself as one of the premier pitchers in all of baseball. Minor league opening day rosters have been essentially set, uh, but not formally announced. Just little bits leaking out about what Marlins prospects are going to which affiliates to begin the regular season. The splashiest news of that being Yuri Perez. In my opinion, many others, the number one overall prospect in the organization. He is making the leap up to double A Pensacola, not yet even at his 19th birthday, he's going to be challenged against people that could very easily be his uncle or his much older, older cousin. It is going to be an assignment that just has very little precedent, especially in the Marlins organization, to challenge somebody less than three years removed from becoming a professional and signing out of the Dominican Republic. He has grown at just an exponential rate, and the performance has backed that up during the regular season, from what we've heard during spring training this year, I, I'm going to watch every single one of his outings um, to cherish the time that he has left in the minor leagues because this teenager is special. No other way to describe it. Our pal Alex Carver on Fish on the Farm spent a lot of his Saturday afternoon dropping assignments for some notable players in the organization. So I'm sure you follow Alex already at Marlins Miners on Twitter. If not, please do so. You could get caught up on all the nuggets there. And we should have official public announcements about those rosters any day now, um, even before the major league roster comes out. So I'm excited to analyze all of those assignments. 
for AAA Jacksonville, AA Pensacola, high A Beloit, and low A Jupiter coming right around the corner. Going back up to the major league team in the final few games of spring training baseball in the Grapefruit League. On Saturday, the game got canceled for once. We've had very good luck weather-wise during this Florida spring training so far. This was the first game that I think even had any delays weather-related, and they're not going to be able to make it up, which means uh, the Marlins, when it's all said and done, they're only going to play 14 spring training games. And um, the 13th one was played on Sunday against the Mets, the Marlins losing 8-4, to four, I believe it was. <laughs> the final score is the least relevant part of the game, but it was uh, 25 combined hits between the Marlins and the Mets, along with four errors and some other plays that could have been errors. It was a sloppy game. It was, fortunately, a televised game by the Mets crew, so we got some nice highlights of that to uh, share and a you know really thorough understanding of what went on. And the Marlins fell behind pretty big early because Pablo Lopez was not effective. It was uh, one of the uglier starting pitching performances that we've had from any Marlins pitcher this spring. The most important thing is that his velocity ticked back up pretty close to where we expected, where he was maxing out at 96 and mostly sitting around 93, 94, with some 95s in there. So the VLO showed there's no concern about him being unhealthy at the moment. He was hit hard, and he faced pretty close to the Mets' opening day lineup, so it's kind of understandable that if he leaves too many pitches over the plate, they did damage against it. He gave up at least one run in every single ending that he pitched in that particular game. He did show some interesting things with his curveball in particular. That's been the one pitch that um, I feel like if he could master it, that really does raise his ceiling as a pitcher, as a starting pitcher, when he has that working for him as well. These They seem to be healthy, so that's what's most important. Also in that game, the Marlins did take the lead early on, a Jorge Soler leadoff opposite field home run. In the air to right field, Marte on his horse, back to the track, back to the wall, and that is gone. Jorge Soler getting the Miami Marlins on the board very quickly. His first home run of the spring, it's 1-0 Miami. It may have been wind-aided. Wind uh, it did not look off the bat or sound off the bat like it was going to go over the wall, but just barely did get past the outstretched glove of Starling Marte. First spring training home run for Soler. Um, even after going 0-3 in the rest of his at-bats, a 12-14 OPS, 1,214 OPS for him in his limited spring training action. It's abundantly clear at this point that he's going to be the Marlins' leadoff hitter moving forward into the regular season. We got a pretty good idea, actually, of what that whole lineup is going to look like with Soler, Cooper, probably in the number two spot. There's this chunk of Cooper, Jesus Sanchez, Jesus Aguilar, Avisel Garcia, in that exact order, and they're either going to be two through five or three through six, depending on what Mattingly wants to do with Jazz Chisholm Jr., Miguel Rojas, Joey Wendell. There's that big power block that's going to be in the middle, and maybe on some days Rojas against lefties might move up to the number two spot against righties. Perhaps it's Wendell, but in general, it's it's you know it's about. 10 guys for nine spots with Stallings, of course, at the as the catcher near the bottom. And uh, Brian Anderson sort of platooning in there, kind of in a rotation with Wendell and Rojas, I imagine it being. 
Uh, barring uh, a surprising trade at the last minute, it, that seems to be where we're at, where it's a deep lineup. Um, there's not any one particular guy that truly puts the, the fear of God in you, uh, unless it's somebody like Soler continuing what he did towards the end of last season. That's what the Marlins were betting on when they signed him, and so far pretty good, using the whole field, moving pretty well in left field as well. He had a outfield assist in this game that we should highlight, of course. Down and away, went down and got it nicely. And Soler comes in and does the little reverse flip here. The pivot, perfect one hop. Really good uh, for him individually. Good for Wendell. Wendell, a three-hit game in this one to raise his average to 400, his OPS to uh, 905. So for, those have been two big bright spots for the Marlins this spring, even though overall the team is kind of meh. Uh, about or even run differential performing worse this spring than they have in the past few for whatever that's worth finally from this particular game on Sunday very fun to see some of the youngest prospects in the Marlins organization get their feet wet uh, in the later innings Khalil Watson Jose Salas Osiris Johnson Brady Allen those are four guys that I just wanted to highlight in there Watson the top position player prospect in the organization right now he only got one at bat, and he struck out on uh, three pitches, but he was facing a major leaguer in Trevor Williams, so that's understandable. Yeah, Salas was in there at shortstop for a couple innings. Osiris Johnson had a nice hit through the left side um, that just split between set shortstop and third, and that was also against uh, Trevor Williams, I think. So another major leaguer for Osiris Johnson, who's had a, a very challenging pro career, but has very intriguing hitting tools if he does stay healthy and if he does stay consistent. Brady and with Brady Allen, you might not recognize that name. He was their mid-round draft pick, fifth-round pick out of South Carolina last year. He did not play in any affiliated minor league games because he was coming back from an injury. A very unusual circumstance where somebody plays their first major league spring training game before having any actual minor league baseball experience. That's unusual. Good to see him because we just had not gotten much information at all about him as a professional player un until now. The Marlins announced a block party coming up on Tuesday at Wynwood Walls from 4 to 7 p.m., uh, giving away some prizes, giving a taste test of some of the food at the ballpark, Bring some other gimmicks in there, a game for you to try out. Some alumni like Gabby Sanchez, Antonio Alfonseca, they're going to be there. Of course, Billy the Marlin is going to be there, the Mermaids as well. This is, this is something that, you know, they've done a little bit of this thing every year. They did a lot of it coming off the rebrand during the 2018-2019 offseason, but maybe not in this particular location. So there's there's going to be more information on our website about that if you stop by. Uh, I don't think anybody from Fish Stripes is going to be there because this actually conflicts with our staff fantasy baseball draft. The rest of you, I hope you have a, a good time while you're there as an appetizer to the actual Marlins home baseball that doesn't begin until April 14th. With all that said, let's get to the trade. The full details, Marlins, in Baltimore Orioles, the Marlins acquiring relievers Cole Solcer and Tanner Scott in exchange for Antonio Velez, Kevin Guerrero, a competitive balance round B draft pick, and the notorious player to be named later, 
in some corresponding moves to to get Solcer and Scott on the 40-man roster. They designated Nick Neidert for assignment, and they moved Sean Gunther to the 60-day injured list. Let's break this down. This is not technically the first trade since the lockout. I thought in my mind, hey, this is probably the first trade that they've done since coming back. And actually, there was that little one um, earlier in the week with the Astros to acquire minor league outfielder uh, Norel Gonzalez for like cash considerations. That was technically a trade. This, of course, being the first impactful trade, especially for the, the 2022 chances. It's a win-now trade. That's kind of the, the super easy summary is that they traded, for the most part, guys that were not going to be contributing whatsoever to the team this year. And they acquired two experienced major league relievers that are in, intriguing in their own ways to address what was a pretty clear need in the bullpen. I have lamented that, how they just put so little effort to this point in the offseason to improve their bullpen. There were so many familiar faces from the end of 2020 from the start of I should say the end of 2021 now remember from the start of last offseason the bullpen was actually in decent shape and uh, it kind of underperformed expectations in high leverage situations depending on which way you slice it you know you could see some bright spots or some negativity from that when you adjust for the actual context that the bullpen allowed their runs in there was some reason to think that simply with some better timing that the relievers they already had could be more valuable than they were in 2021, yet the ceiling on this bullpen was not super high. For for one, what stands out is the lack of velocity in the bullpen. They were one of the very few teams, and even are now, the teams that have more velocity in their rotation than they do in their bullpen. They more strikeout potential even in their rotation than they do in their bullpen it's kind of backwards from what you normally do when you're trying to shut down opponents in tight games in the later innings. It's important to have guys that miss bats. Solcer and Scott do that in some very different ways. Solcer is really kind of the biggest prize here, I would say. You know, these guys are very different. I would lean towards Solcer basically on the strength of the great year that he just had last year for the Orioles. I wouldn't blame you for not picking up on it for a team that lost 110 games. They just did not have very many meaningful reliever situations to to test guys in. With Solcer, he was definitely a bright spot for their pen. Certainly for the full season overall, he was their most valuable reliever. Like if you take out the leverage situations, he produced more than two wins above replacement. That's very hard to do in a conventional relief role. He is... Only, you know, two plus years into his major league career, yet he's 32 years old. A very unconventional path for a former 25th round draft pick. Unusual for those guys who make it to the big leagues in any capacity. But he did. Originally from the Cleveland organization. uh, Spent a bunch of years there. Didn't quite make it to the highest level. Went to the Rays. And as usual, the Rays... Find something good in him. His strikeout rates really exploded in, uh, what was it, 2018, and were pretty good in 2019 as well. This was in the upper minors. Debuted for the Rays at the major league level in 2019, but just a very small sample, and then the Orioles have had him for the last two years. He's been a staple in their pen. 
in 2020, uh, really high walk rate, um, just not super exciting. From the beginning, what you could see is this really nasty changeup. 2-2 on the way, and he got him. Ball game. Down on strikes. Cole Salser closes it out and gets the win. That's going to be the key for him. That's the pitch that he throws, what, 33% of the time? Nearly a third of his pitch usage is that changeup. Uh, because on pure fastball velocity, nothing special. 93 miles per hour for a right-hander. That's actually below average for a right-handed relief pitcher. It's that changeup and that slider that he uses off of his fastball that is going to make him effective. That made him effective uh, last year to the tune of a 2.70 ERA. Remember, adjusting for the context that he was pitching in the American League against all DH lineups and that he was pitching at Camden Yards for half of his games, which is one of the most pit hitter-friendly ballparks that has ever been used, especially in uh, modern times. There is not much you can do um, when you put balls in the air to actually keep them in the ballpark, yet somehow he allowed only five home runs in his what, 63 in the third total innings. He led four of those five at home, as you would expect. So the higher ERA, higher home runs allowed at home in Baltimore. Uh, overall, though, still very effective no matter where he was. Did well against both lefties and righties. Was pretty consistent throughout the season. What changes is his role. It took until later in the year for him to reliably be put in high leverage situations, and he ended up saving eight games. I think the perfect... Um, Micro, the perfect summation of the 2021 Orioles is that Solcer saved eight games, eight total saves, and that tied for the team lead. That's how non-competitive they were, and that's how much volatility they had at that closer's role, where they cycled through a bunch of guys, and Solcer was the one that, for towards the end of the year, is when he really held it down. We always say this, that it's harder to take September production as seriously as other months of the year. So that is um, something to keep in mind with him. That is one of the better months that he has. Let's see, he finished the year on a string of nine consecutive scoreless outings. But it came at a time with expanded rosters. It came at a time when it was as obvious as ever that the or Orioles were not competing for anything. And that certainly you know helped his overall numbers in a way that you know, we should be mindful of. Now, the age is really not much of a consideration here for somebody that's a reliever. Now, it's unusual for someone to be 32 years old and still only have a major league track record of 93 innings, but that's not quite as worrisome for this particular role compared to other positions. With him, really, the most important part of this trade is that I said it was a win-now trade, but it also could have pretty considerable long-term benefits as well. Solskjaer is under club control for another four years. This is his last year of pre-arbitration eligibility, and then three more years after that. And that's assuming he sticks in the major leagues, which is you know, not a total guarantee, despite how well he did last year. Presumably, at the start of the year, he's going to get a good look in high-leverage situations. Might even pick up a save or two early in the year when Dylan Floro is still on the injured list. If they do need it eventually, though, still has three minor league options remaining, and that could affect his, his service time. If there is any stretch of extended struggles, they have that flexibility. So they have flexibility, they have affordability, 
They have long-term control ability. He's he's an interesting, really interesting pickup for them. Sort of like, I guess you could draw some parallels between him and somebody like John Curtis, who they you know they traded for at this time about a year ago, and ended up trading him away as well. There's there's a lot of intrigue here, but ultimately it's a really small sample, and the, the you don't have to go back too far to find a time when he was kind of struggling at the major league level with him. He, to me, is the, the main pickup here. When, and Tanner Scott is uh, an, an intriguing guy to take a flyer on as well. Considerably younger than Solcer. This is going to be his age 27 season. He was more highly regarded as a prospect, being that he made it to the majors when, what, right when he just turned 23, 24? I would say. So parts of five major league seasons with the Orioles. And with him, it's kind of reverse, where if you go back to 2020, he was awesome for them. He only allowed three earned runs in 20 and two-thirds innings. So a 1.31 ERA that year, only about a base runner per inning. And then this past year, his control really betrayed him. A lot of walks, six hit batters, 10 wild pitches. And I pulled up this really obscure stat from Fangraphs that proportionately, the number of wild pitches that he threw per batter's face, it was the worst ratio among all qualified relievers in baseball to throw 10 wild pitches while facing 251 batters. It was the problem of giving up too many free passes, so putting runners on base, and then kind of hurting yourself by moving, missing the target and moving them along into scoring position. Bad combination. Um, overall, you know, a 5.17 ERA, it's not a disaster, again, when you adjust for the competition he was facing in the American League East Division and the home ballpark he had at Camden Yards. First career, a 4.73 ERA, an interesting um, gap between that and his 4.00 fielder independent pitching, nearly three quarters of a run discrepancy uh, working against him over his 156 innings. That's something that no matter what your pitching style, it should even up a little bit eventually. He had spent his entire career in the Orioles organization, so nearly eight years before this trade coming here to the Marlins. He has three years of club control remaining. He's already in his first year of arbitration eligibility and then two more years beyond that. Uh, A left-handed pitcher, if I didn't already say so, and a power arm from the left side. He's got gas throws a fastball that averaged what almost 97 miles per hour from the left side this past season goes 50 50 pretty much between his fastball and his slider the slider clocking in at about 88 89 miles per hour he missed a little bit of time last year with a a left knee sprain in fact two separate il stints for that and let's see, how is he doing here in spring training? He pitched four games in spring training and uh, was kind of, yikes. He did allow eight base runners in three and two-thirds innings pitched. Not super encouraged by that. So for this season, earning a little bit more than a million dollars, right, after avoiding arbitration with an agreement, I would not expect him to be pitching high-leverage innings immediately. Um, and also, just for his career, He's been pretty good against fellow lefty batters, um, but with only like one exception. Aside from 2020, that looks like an outlier. Aside from that, he has struggled against righties. 
which means trying to use him in very carefully. I think the term they use in Major League Baseball now is finding lanes to insert a reliever like this, where you feel pretty confident that he's going to be having the platoon advantage. That's important for him. Um, with his velocity and his delivery, it is really tough on lefties to even put the ball in play uh, against him. Somebody that will definitely benefit from getting out of Camden Yards. Again, everybody does benefit to some extent from that on the pitching side. Pretty high ground ball rates in his career. Um, 53% last year, 58% during that really effective shortened season in 2020. For context, the league average in the majors is like 43, and so he's been hovering well above 50 for in recent years. This, again, being Tanner Scott, the uh, the second reliever that the Marlins are acquiring here. Also, Lex Solcer, he has a minor league option remaining if things do go awry. You don't necessarily have to uh, give up on him all at once if you don't want to, but he is going to be in the opening day bullpen for sure. That's kind of why they made this trade is to give them more variety of looks and just more effectiveness in their bullpen entering opening day, expecting to carry 10 relief pitchers for the first few weeks of the season with these expanded rosters. Instead of 26 spots, it's 28 spots. Given the shortened spring training, the starter's not fully stretched out. You put more relievers than you normally would in that situation. These guys are going to have a pretty important role on the team, both Scott and Solcer, right out of the gate, considering that, as we, as I mentioned, Dylan Floro, who might be the best reliever overall in this bullpen right now, is not going to be available for what might be a, a couple weeks to start the season as he gets loosened up, basically. No, no like particular injury, just behind everybody else in building up for game readiness uh, this season. I like the contrast in the styles between Solcer and Scott. Combining them, seven years of club control remaining, which is not as important for relievers as anybody else. I think anybody that is um, talking about this as a clear win for the Marlins with the trade, we're going to get into the prospects in just a moment. Uh, it's a little bit more complex than that. It certainly makes their team better for this year. Um but relying on relievers to be like long-term pieces of your team is always naive. It can go away really quickly. And for somebody like Solcer, especially, who kind of came not out of nowhere, but had, it took a long time just to reach the big leagues in the first place, It's don't get too comfortable or too in love with just the raw stuff and the results that these guys have had uh, in the past. It's a move that I think was right to make. I will also say, in context of what they could have done this offseason, I think that's where I'm a little bit less enthused about it, considering how many relievers were available in free agency earlier this offseason. Again, they gave up were ultimately going to be four young players to get these two relievers, and did not. they've not done anything in free agency to address their bullpen. Despite all the guys that were available, Solcer, a little bit of closer experience. Scott, when he's well, he's worked in high leverage situations before. That I mean, that doesn't compare to a lot of the guys that were available on the market. Somebody that I was pointing towards early in the offseason, Joe Kelly, gets goes to the White Sox on a pretty reasonable two-year deal. 
you could go all around. Almost every reliever, even some of the really established ones, were were affordable on short-term deals. Um, not quite as efficient salary-wise than Solser and Scott, who combined are going to make less than $2 million. It's just that with all these relievers that were available on one-year deals, two-year deals, uh, Jake Diekman, another example. If you want to talk about a, an alternative to Tanner Scott, Jake Diekman from the left side, who's been been there and done that before and been really effective. I know Kevin Barral was a big fan of Andrew Chafin, who got a two-year deal in free agency as well on the other side of the lockout. The list goes on. Dozens and dozens of free agents that came off the board who you could have signed without giving up any young talent in exchange. At this stage of the offseason, this is kind of what they had to do. The the remaining free agents on the market are... uh, they, they're, they're really probably not as good, any of them, as Solser is right now. I, th- I think they, um, at this stage of the offseason, this is kind of what they had to do to get somebody who was already in Major League camp and would have been ready to contribute from opening day. That was important. Not to, um, yeah, instead of holding out hope that a crusty veteran coming off of his couch would be able to help in the near future, they went with guys who were already in Major League camp and getting ramped up for that. I just think they may have missed the boat on properly managing this whole situation. If, if they had invested in just one relatively high leverage reliever with more of a resume than either Solser or Scott and been able to hold on to a little bit more of this prospect depth uh, than they're actually able to. So running through the departures real quick, uh, my favorite of the bunch, Antonio Velez. Got screwed by COVID. Simple as that. He should have been a mid-round draft pick under normal circumstances in 2020, but only a five-round draft that year out of Florida State. He goes undrafted. Signs with the Marlins, one of the best-performing players, bar none, in the Marlins organization in 2021. Started with Beloit, moved up to Pensacola, only got better after he got promoted to Pensacola, He's not that far away from the big league. So this is the one guy that maybe in the right scenario could have contributed later this year to the Marlins at the major league level. He was set to begin this season in the double-A Pensacola rotation. Has great control. Has a great changeup. I, I think his fastball command is really good as well. And, I mean, watching him pitch, I'm a believer in him. Like having a substantial major league career. Uh, maybe not as a starter but as, as something, and he would have been up relatively soon, 25 years old. He just had his birthday, too. He's a Miami native, so awkward. It's awkward timing for him, um, but one that shows just how much he has grown You know, since going undrafted, that he was able to raise his stock enough to be part of this trade. Uh, next up, Kevin Guerrero, much different type of player, only 17 years old at this moment. He's going to turn 18 in a couple of weeks. One of the bigger players that the Marlins signed in international free agency, I guess this was just a year ago in the class of 2020-2021 out of the Dominican Republic. He had a nice year in the DSL, playing pretty much every day as an outfielder for them. Very tall guy, still needs to fill out, um, hasn't tapped into that home run power quite yet. Watching him, there, there's a lot of to like about the swing in general and the athleticism he has, the potential to actually stick in center field with him. 
I had Velez a little bit higher on my prospect ranking, rankings than uh, Guerrero, just because Guerrero is so far away from the big leagues. They did bring him stateside this spring. Um, so he is going, we'll be seeing him in the complex league, the Florida complex league this season, where he'll be one of the younger players there. Uh, if he fills out and um, like, there's the potential for him to be a legit outfielder, like starting caliber outfielder, if everything goes right, just so far away, like at least three years from even thinking about, you know, calling him up just because of how young he is, how inexperienced he is. And, how, uh, how raw he still is at this stage of his career. I think the Marlins gave him a $600,000 bonus. So that's equivalent, actually, to uh, this draft pick, pretty much. Um, I, I, it's kind of hard to sometimes pair the international signings with the American signings, I, you know, putting them into context. This is kind of funny, though, how Guerrero and this competitive balance round B draft pick yeah, are, are pretty similar assets, you could say. But this draft pick, it looks like it's going to be in the late 60s in the draft order this upcoming July, right after the second round of the main second round of the draft. The Marlins get this as a revenue sharing recipient because they're in a quote small market. They get this extra draft pick. And this, these are the only kind of draft picks that you can trade, the ones that are in competitive balance rounds. And so I think the slot value of this pick is higher than actually Guerrero's signing bonus. But if you kind of translate for the, the differences in the financial systems between international free agency and uh, the amateur draft, it's kind of a similar type of player in terms of one that is far enough from the top of the draft order that they'll be able to get. It also it does hurt the Marlins in that it limits the financial flexibility that they have in their own draft pool this upcoming year. For a team like the Marlins that really prides itself in how it does its amateur drafting the past few years, this is a pretty significant loss. And if you want to go by what baseball trade values uses in their algorithm, they believe that this draft pick is actually the biggest loss for the Marlins here, the most valuable piece that is moving, changing hands in this entire trade, even more so than either of the individual pitchers, actually. They value this draft pick at four million dollars in terms of the type of player that they can get at that draft spot this upcoming summer so that's interesting and finally we have the player to be named later with that i believe the marlins are still going to be getting a player ptbnl from the padres as well from the jorge alfaro trade they have one coming in and they're going to be sending one out we're operating under the assumption that this is a really marginal type of player uh, hopefully it is. Um, if if we assume that it is, then I do feel still relatively comfortable about this trade. Uh, Guerrero is the one that has the biggest upside. He's the one that could haunt them. I jokingly told somebody 10 years down the line they could be haunted by Guerrero, and I don't think that's an exaggeration because he is still so far away from potentially being anything in the big leagues. He'll still like be in his prime 10 years from now if he is fortunate enough to, you know, to stay healthy and develop on a positive track. Wishing Velez the best, wishing Guerrero the best. Credit to Marlins scouting, both amateur, yeah, amateur scouting on both sides to, to find those guys. And especially Velez seems to have perked up his value from where it was a couple of years ago. And I think you could probably say the same with Guerrero, the fact that they feel he's already 
ready to uh, come over to the U.S. in spring and face a lot of older competition this spring. These are um, these guys were on my personal prospect rankings, kind of between twenty and thirty-ish, kind of in that range. Where this is the kind of players that you should feel totally comfortable moving if you are prioritizing the present. And lastly, the, the players that got squeezed off the 40-man roster to accommodate Solser and Scott. As I suspected, it was going to be two pitchers because the 40-man roster was kind of pitching heavy for the Marlins. Sean Gunther was expected going to the 60-day IL. He, he hadn't appeared in any Grapefruit League spring training games. He has some sort of arm issue, according to Christina DeNicola of MLB.com. And surgery is an option for whatever the particular issue is. Though the Marlins don't seem to be counting on getting anything from him this year. And with all due respect, they didn't get anything from him last year. Last year, he put up an ERA around nine. He just got hit around late in the season. It was good on him to reach the big leagues after being not really heralded much as a prospect at any point. But now hopefully he can overcome uh, this setback at some point and uh, become a contributor to most likely their bullpen at some point, 2023 and beyond. Nick Neidert is the big eyebrow-raising move here. Neidert is, was their 2018 Minor League Pitcher of the Year for the Marlins. That, he was already up to double A, and he was awesome that year. An interesting blend of command and a deep pitch mix. He really does have four, if not five, legit pitches. And at various times in his development, you can point to both the changeup and the slider as being above average offerings. So if a guy that gets ahead in the count has two secondaries that you really like, um, this was at one time one of the better pitching prospects in the entire organization. But it just has not progressed well from there. In 2019, he had this knee issue early in the year that derailed him for most of that year. It seemed that like he had straightened things out in the Arizona Fall League in 2019, but during his cracks at the big leagues, it hasn't really materialized. He didn't get much of an opportunity in uh, 2020. He was one of the many players that got went down with COVID and so barely got any endings in. Most of those were in very low leverage as a reliever. 2021, he had a great opportunity, and he was... Honestly, one of the more disappointing players on the 2021 Marlins. I thought that was going to be a nice opportunity for him to establish himself as a back-end starter, at the very least. But for whatever reason, his command just did not fully get there where it used to be. Like That was one of his calling cards, is getting ahead in counts and then making good decisions from there. And he just couldn't get ahead in counts for the Marlins in 2021 how many, we made what, like seven or eight starts. And for a couple of them, he was able to dance around traffic on the bases. There was always traffic on the bases. So the ERA on its own might look semi-encouraging at 4.54 last year, but he was issuing more walks than strikeouts. Just unfathomable for the type of prospect that he was just a few years before. So, so many, so much like of his own, doing was um so much of his demise was his own doing i should say just not farewell at all even when he was down in triple a this past year it was yeah it was kind of difficult to watch in spring training uh, they answered this spring already saying that they were going to shift him 
to a relief role. He was saying all the right things about just being grateful for being on the roster. He was, I thought, seemingly perfectly on track to make the opening day roster in like a long man role as one of the beneficiaries of the expanded roster. And I'm curious to see whether that would have been the case had he actually had this trade not come together and him not being, you know, part of the um, the consequences of that losing his 40-man roster spot. He's in DFA limbo now. So for the next seven days, uh, Marlins can either work out a trade or lose him via waiver claim. Or, um, so the one thing for sure is that he is not going to be another Monte Harrison or another Isan Diaz. He's not going to clear waivers, I don't think. He's younger than either of them, just 25 years old. He still has two minor league options left, even if other teams aren't confident in him being a contributor at the big league level right now, they could just send him to the minors and take as much time as they need to get him right down there to make any suggestions they want to make uh, to his game. I'm certain that he's going to be on a different team when this week is up. The question is whether they can actually work out a trade and get something in return, get a non 40 man prospect or prospects in return, even include him in part of a bigger trade. We'll see on that. I've been proven wrong on that, Neil, multiple times. I was reminded of that <laughs> it, with, uh, at this time, a year ago, Harold Ramirez. I thought they were get something in return for Harold Ramirez. No, he was just a waiver claim. Um, Harlan Garcia, uh, the year before, when he ultimately went to the Giants, he was coming off a great year in the Marlins bullpen. But other teams, they saw some of the underlying numbers with him and uh, didn't value him much. I... I do think they are going to get something in return for Nider, meaning that multiple teams are going to put in a waiver claim for him, allowing the Marlins to actually negotiate a trade and send him to the highest bidder. He still has that deep pitch mix, and he's still not that far removed from being a nice prospect for them. So for somebody that has a starting pitcher upside that has two minor league options remaining, that's still just 25 years old, and for what it's worth, for someone who has really good makeup and has a great attitude and role in the clubhouse, that nice halo effect on other people, like, I think there's real value there. And I can't understand why the Marlins would DFA him at this particular time unless they felt certain in getting something in return. There were other arms on this roster that didn't need to stay on this roster. Guys like Older pitchers with lesser stuff, like Daniel Castano, um, Paul Campbell, who just left a really bad first impression with the Marlins last year. He's still on the 40-man roster as well. These aren't super easy decisions, but the timing of this Nidert moves makes me feel pretty sure that they're going to get a trade done with him in uh, the next few days. Nidert was one of the very first prospects that they acquired under this administration once this rebuild got underway acquired him from the mariners and finally they gave him a few opportunities and he didn't capitalize on them and uh, they are seemingly willing to sell low on him rather than giving him one last shot to potentially contribute out of the bullpen or as an emergency spot starter so it's an interesting call i, I don't totally disagree with it again this is just contingent on them getting something in return uh, for Nidert because I think he still does have some interesting upside if he's somehow able to get back to what he used to be just a few years ago 
for the Marlins. I've been Eli Sussman from Fish Stripes here on the official show, getting ready for an insane opening week here with all our coverage. Be sure to follow along with all our Marlins coverage as we reach the dawn of this 2022 regular season. Glad that we finally had this sudden trade to react to, and I suspect not the final significant move that we'll see this week leading up to opening day. We appreciate all the support from you guys. Thank you, Marlins fans. As always, go fish.